Amen. You may have a seat. And if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. That's Matthew chapter 21. Now, if you've been with us for a few weeks here, you'll uh, be a little thrown off that we're not in the book of Ephesians. We are going to take a break here for Palm Sunday uh, and Easter weekend and then wrap up immediately after Easter uh, for a few weeks with our Ephesians series. But uh, Matthew chapter 21, if you have your Bible with you, uh, for those of you watching online as well. Um, I do want to just pause and recognize that we are in Easter week here. And so we're here on Palm Sunday. We'll recognize and teach through that today. Uh, And then, of course, we come into the biggest week of our year as Christians, as believers. Uh, That is Good Friday coming up this Friday, and I invite you to come to that service at 7 p.m. I'll be leading us through as we think about the cross of Jesus Christ, as we glory in the cross of Jesus Christ, and take communion together. So I invite you to be here this Friday. And then, of course, we come into Easter weekend. And listen, um, the Apostle Paul tells us that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we should all pack it up and go home, right? But we We as a church believe he is alive, and so we are celebrating next weekend. I invite you to be here. Uh, I hope this will just be an encouragement to your heart next weekend, uh, Easter weekend coming up. And so uh, for all of us, uh, Easter weekend is always sort of this tricky weekend where you're trying to navigate your family's schedule and your church schedule. Uh, As always, we expect our 9 and 11 a.m. services to be our most crowded services. So uh, if you are looking for sort of a more mellow or or, or fewer people in a service, 6 p.m. Saturday night, 7 a.m. Sunday morning will be your best bet. Uh, but we look forward to seeing you uh, at uh, our, we- our weekend services, our Easter weekend next weekend. We're, we're just uh, looking forward to a remarkable weekend as we gather together as a church uh, and celebrate and remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, but for today, uh, we are here at Palm Sunday, and we've been recognizing that already in the service today. Uh, but I want to talk you through and walk you through the story of Palm Sunday to set our hearts right uh, for this Easter week. So again, Matthew chapter 21, if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll start right there in verse 1. It says this, As they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, or if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will will send them right away. Now what we're about to witness, especially if you grew up in church and you know the story here, um, is Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem riding on on this colt um, is going to be this really grand moment of Jesus entering in with crowds cheering out Hosanna and laying down palm branches and laying down cloaks. It's this really wonderful and beautiful moment. And if you've actually tracked closely with the Gospels, you'll recognize that this is a unique moment in Jesus' ministry. Typically, where Jesus is doing ministry is in the countrysides, up in Galilee. Typically, Jesus will do ministry, then he'll slip away to pray, and he'll avoid the crowds. He'll be with them, and then he'll go away. At times, even in Jesus' ministry, and this always surprises me when I read the Gospels, he'll do something miraculous in someone's life, and then he'll go, shh, don't tell anyone. He'll keep it quiet. There's this interesting way Jesus has proceeded through his ministry, where he's trying not to get things too built up, but then when we get to Palm Sunday, And he flips, and suddenly, it's his grand entrance. Suddenly, all eyes are on him. Suddenly, all the attention is on Jesus. When I think of this text, I think about something that happened right here in this room just over nine years ago. See, it was March 1st of 2013, I was in this room with my family and my friends and everyone who loved me. See, I was standing right here in the middle of this stage on March 1st, 2013, the day I got married. And I had my groomsmen, and I had the bridesmaids and the bridal party, and everyone was here. 
And we all know how this works with a wedding, right? With a wedding, you've got all the entrances and usually the officiant comes up and the groom comes up and gives like an awkward wave and that's kind of how it works. And then everyone comes in the room and there's nice music and everyone's kind of half smiling and half wondering like what time's dinner, right? Like that's how this works at the wedding thing. And then what happens? Through that door, through that tunnel right there, my wife walks out, dressed as a bride, beautifully adorned for her wedding day in her white dress, and she comes out. What does the whole room do? The whole room stands, and every eye in the room is her on her. This is her grand entrance, her big moment. It is the moment where every eye is on her. And I think about that today on Palm Sunday, because this is Jesus' grand entrance. Every eye is on him. And Jesus, who has spent so much of his ministry off in the shadows, off to the side, healing people, moving from here to there, suddenly wants all attention on him. And I think on a day like today, we need to recognize that the attention is on Jesus because Jesus in this moment is revealing himself for who he actually is to Jerusalem and revealing himself to who he actually is to us today. See, today I want us to set our eyes on our affection, our attention on Jesus. I want us to look to Christ and how he reveals and defines himself on this day. And the reason I want us to do this is very simple. I'm going to say something that might sound obvious, but I think it's important for us this morning. It's this, that if we don't get Christ right, we will not get Christianity right. If we don't get Christ right, we won't get Christianity right. Now that might sound like the most obvious statement anyone has ever made in the church ever, right? That might sound like, duh. Of course that's the case. But can't we just confess this morning that sometimes you and I see things in the world, in the media, that purport to be Christian that have nothing to do with our Christ? Don't we see things like this that actually go under the banner of Christianity but don't look anything like our Christ? See, it's almost once a week someone sends me a video from YouTube or on social media or a book or a pastor or a conference or a movement. Someone presents something to me and says, what do you think about this, pastor? And sometimes I see the thing and I'm encouraged by it, but sometimes I see the thing that calls itself Christianity and it looks nothing like our Christ. And this morning, as we think about Jesus' grand entrance, as we set our eyes and our hearts and our affection on him, I want us to be the type of people who can recognize Jesus for who he is because we, Calvary, when we get Christ right, we will always get Christianity right. Living and loving like Jesus will depend on us seeing Jesus clearly And that's what I want for us as we go through a world that is filled with voices that call themselves Christians, with movements and pastors and books and podcasts and social media that are purporting to be Christians. Now, when we approach all of the different noises and voices in this world that call themselves Christian, there's two different approaches for us to be able to discern what is true and what is false. In the New Testament, there's a big burden that we would be aware of and attuned to false teaching. That we would be the type of people who know when something is true and true to the gospel and faithful to Jesus. And we would know when things are false teaching. I think there's two approaches for us to do this. And the first is that we would be the type of people who study the counterfeits. Who who try to figure out all the different false teachings in the world. And, And so we list them all out or we name them publicly. Or every time there's something that comes up, we as pastors get up and stand up and tell you, don't you believe this? And I think there's actually some value in that. I think all of us should have some awareness of world religions, of the different beliefs about God. We should have some awareness about the different kinds of Christian faiths that are out there and which fall within the range of biblical Christianity and which fall outside of it. But here's the problem with the approach of studying the counterfeits. There are just far too many Christian voices, pastors, books, conferences, 
social media accounts, YouTube channels, for us to possibly know all of them. And so rather than us being a people that are constantly listing all the things we are against, here's what I want us to be. Listen, we can study the counterfeits or we can study the real thing. We can study the real thing. We can set our eyes on Jesus. We can look to Jesus clearly. And when we know him clearly, we'll be able to identify the counterfeits. Maybe you've heard the illustration that when federal agents are are looking at fake money, at counterfeit bills, in their time of study and in their program, they don't look at the counterfeit bills. They simply study real money. And they know what real dollar bills look like so well that when they see a counterfeit, they can't even tell you right away what's wrong, but they know something is amiss. Now, I don't know about you. I've never studied dollar bills and don't know much about being a federal agent, but I'll tell you something I do know a lot about, and that, my friends, is nachos. Can we talk about nachos for a second? All right, we're going to talk about nachos in church. Um, Early in the pandemic, um, my wife and I made a decision, and that was that every Friday night, we had always done date night together. And we'd gotten a babysitter and gone out, and we'd always been in that pattern. But when we kind of got like confined to our homes, remember that early pandemic time where it's like, don't leave your home ever, right? So we just decided we're going to keep date night going. We're just going to do it here at the house. And somewhere in that exact time frame, we discovered this local nacho place. And so we started every Friday night to order the same plate of nachos. They started to get used to our voice on the phone. We would order the nachos. I would pick them up. I would bring them back home. We would put the children to bed and we would eat nachos. We would do this every Friday night over and over and over again. Those nachos were everything to us. It was all we thought about every week. It was Friday's coming and nachos come with it. But then one Friday. I ordered the nachos. I went to the store. I picked them up. I brought them home. We sat down to eat the nachos and something, something tastes different. I didn't know what it was. I was so thrown off because something tastes different. And I did something I never do. I never do this, I swear. But this Friday, I called in. I called the store and I said, something's wrong with the nachos. And, I, and, and they were so surprised that anyone even noticed. They said, sir, it's just this small little thing. We just couldn't get a shipment of it this week. So we changed out one ingredient. And isn't it remarkable that I couldn't even put my finger on what was wrong. I just knew something was off. Like I knew those nachos so well. I knew every note and every flavor that I couldn't even tell you what was wrong. But I could tell you that something was. See, that, my friends, is what we need to do with true Christian faith. We need to know the real thing. We need to know Jesus so well that when someone sends you a video or a book or an article or makes a comment in church, you might not even know quite what's wrong with it, but you're certain that it's not the real thing. You're certain that it's off somehow. You focused your eyes on Jesus so clearly. You know him so well and you know him so intimately that when someone says something that's wrong, you don't even know what's wrong with it, but you know what the real thing is. So here's what happens on Palm Sunday. Jesus reveals himself as the real deal. He says, all eyes on me. I want you to see who I am and what I'm all about. And this is what you'll see in the second verse of chapter 21. It says this, or pardon me, in the, in the um, we're gonna be in the fourth verse. It says this, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. So Jesus comes in, he says, I'm the real deal, all eyes on me. And this morning we're gonna be talking about what it means to look at Jesus and know what the real thing is so we can identify the counterparts. And the way Matthew wants us to do this is through a prophecy that was written hundreds of years before Jesus went into Jerusalem. A prophecy from the prophet Zechariah. Here's what it says in verse five. See, daughter Zion, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, so here's Matthew. 
framing Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And he says, it's not just that Jesus is riding some random animal into a city and people are celebrating. This is not random. This is meant to point us to something. And I think every reader of Matthew's gospel would have immediately thought, huh, that comes from Zechariah chapter nine. And so because that comes from Zechariah chapter nine, here's what I want us to do. Uh, We'll go back to Matthew, but if you have your Bible with you this morning, I think it will actually benefit you. Would you flip back to the book of Zechariah, back to that prophecy, Zechariah? Now, listen, if you're anything like me, um, I kind of know where things are in the Bible. Zechariah, it'd probably take me a while. I always want to remind us we have our holy Bible and praise God, we have a holy table of contents, okay? Uh, And we can turn to that and and then just flip to Zechariah. I just think it'll benefit you to see it. We're gonna spend some time in Zechariah nine because again, Jesus reveals himself. He says, I'm the real deal. Look to me, set your eyes on me. And he does this through this prophecy in Zechariah chapter nine. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen. Here's what it says in Zechariah chapter nine, uh, verse nine. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, which is a way of talking about the Jewish people. It's a way of talking about God's people. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So so here's what happens. Matthew is gonna quote out of this text in Zechariah, this prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus. And what it identifies Jesus as, we'll go back one slide here, what it's going to tell us is that we're going to rejoice. Why? Because the person riding in is your king. The person riding in as your king. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem, makes his grand entrance on Palm Sunday, he is making an unmistakable statement about himself. And here's the first of three statements I want you to be clear on. He is making the statement that he, Jesus, is the king. He is the king. He is in charge. He is the Lord over all things. He is sovereign over all things. When Jesus marches in, he does not just march in as a prophet, as a teacher, As a good man or a miracle worker, he is declaring before the people that he is the king. So when we see Jesus, when we identify him as the real thing, here's what that should do in us. It should exalt Jesus to this place of lordship and kingship. And then here's the radar that should go off in our heart anytime we see something different. Listen to me. Every version of Christianity that does not exalt Jesus as king is not true Christian faith. Any pastor or preacher or book or podcast or conference or anything you hear that calls itself Christian but downplays the fact that Jesus is king and is in charge is not true New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity is always going to lift up Jesus as he's the king, he's in charge, he's Lord of our lives. So what do we need to do? We want to beware any kind of Christianity that downplays Jesus' lordship, that downplays the fact that Jesus is in charge, that downplays the fact that Jesus has commands for us and we are called to follow and walk in obedience to those commands. Listen, we want to downplay any type of Christianity that kind of gets muddy with the moral issues that Jesus speaks so clearly on. We want to be cautious of any kind of Christianity that downplays the fact that God gets to call what is good, good, and evil, evil. He's the one who gets to do that. We want, to, we want to be cautious of any kind of Christianity that dethrones Jesus and says he's just one among many options for you. No, we want to be aware that any kind of version, any kind of Christian idea, any kind of book or conference or pastor or idea that does not exalt Jesus as the ultimate king it is a suspect kind of Christianity. One that should have some kind of alarms going off in our heart because Jesus marches into Jerusalem and he is the king and everyone is abundantly clear on that. I want to go back to Zechariah chapter 9. As we continue here, I want to show you the next thing that Jesus reveals in verse 10. As you continue reading, it says this, 
I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So you see what happens here. Jesus is the king, and then it says he's going to take away the chariots from Ephraim. Like the chariots, these war machines of the ancient world will be no more. The war horses from Jerusalem, they won't need war horses because there's not going to be battles anymore. He's going to break the battle bow. These weapons of war will be no more. And then it says this, he will proclaim peace to the nations from the sea to the sea and to the ends of the earth. So so listen, when Jesus marches into Jerusalem, it is clear to everyone that he is the king. It is clear to everyone that he is the Lord, he is the king, he is being announced as the king of God's people and the king of the world, and we should see that clearly in Jesus. But then I also want us to be clear that according to this prophecy, what's true about Jesus is he's not just the king, but it's this, that Jesus is the king who comes to bring peace. Jesus is the king who comes to bring peace. And what I want us to be is a people who see Jesus and understand that Jesus is the one who comes to bring peace, peace into our lives, peace into our world, peace with us and God. Let me say it this way to you this morning. Any version of Christianity that does not lead you to peace is not true Christian faith. Listen, in the New Testament, God is called the God of peace. We as believers have the peace with God when we are saved and redeemed and forgiven of our sins. We have the peace of God that we carry with us everywhere we go. Peace is not a side dish or an optional part of the Christian faith. It is right at the center of what it means to be a follower and believer in Jesus. And I want us to be aware of any kind of Christianity that does not lead us into a peaceful place with God and a peaceful place with others. You might say, what kind of Christianity is that? It is the kind of Christianity that is constantly trying to get you stirred up, whipped up, outraged, and angry at the world. You ever notice this is a pattern sometimes in our, in our Christian lives? Like there's voices in our Christian world that just seem to be perpetually outraged at the world. People say to me things like this all the time. They go, Brian, Pastor Brian, can you believe, can you even believe That this celebrity, this movie, this TV show, this award show, this company, this magazine, this thing, can you believe what they did? And then they describe some sinful act. And my answer is always the same. Yes, I can believe that. Why can I believe that? Yes, I always believe that people who do not follow Jesus will not act like followers of Jesus. That's the obvious thing. We should expect the world to act like the world. And any kind of Christianity that just tries to constantly have you whipped up and angry at the world is not leading you to peace, and it is not true Christian faith. Listen, I can look at the world, I can see the sinfulness, I can be concerned, but any kind of pastor, movement, book, idea, podcast, social media account you follow, where it's a Christian just trying to constantly gin up anger for you, is that's not leading you to peace. That is not true Christian faith. Listen, there is a type of Christian faith that tries to have you constantly anxious and fearful for the future, the future of our country, the future of our church. Now, listen, I got three kids under the age of five. I think about their future all the time. I think about the country they're going to grow up in. I have my concerns. You do too. But can we just say this clearly this morning? As followers of Jesus and believers in the Prince of Peace, we should have more peace than the rest of the world, not less. Amen? Like, that's what we should be. We should be a people who are just filled with peace, not because we agree with everything going on out there. I certainly don't, and you don't either. But because we know God has the whole world in his hands, 
Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. And so any kind of Christian voice, Christian author, Christian pastor, Christian book that is just whipping me up away from peace is not following after the Jesus who entered into Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace and the King of Peace. Let's be aware of any kind of Christianity that's trying to just outrage us and make us angry all the time, constantly fill us with fear about the future. Or or there's this one, um, the voices right now that love to predict the demise of the church, right? Have you heard any of these? No one's going to come back to church after the pandemic. Churches are on their way out. Within 100 years, no one's going to be a Christian. The church is collapsing. You might as well jump off this ship now because it's sinking into the ocean. And listen, I might be tempted to believe that except for the fact that my Savior made a claim and he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? And so what we want to be is the type of people, yeah, who are not scared for the future of the church. It's Jesus' church, not ours, right? We want to be the type of people who are being led into peace. And if whatever voice you're listening to is not leading you toward peace, I just want you to be suspicious of that voice. Like we should leave church, not like outraged and angry, like walking to our cars, like I can't believe this, right? We should be walking out of church every Sunday and going, God is good and the world is a mess and yet he's gonna redeem it all. That's what he's gonna do. And so that's the kind of Christian faith we wanna have. Again, he will proclaim peace to the nations. And then again, Zechariah 9, the last verse we'll look at, verse 11, this next verse, it says this, and because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. So in other words, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. This is the prophecy that he is going to be the king, yes. And he's going to bring peace, yes. But then every person seeing this would have known, you're going to rescue prisoners from the waterless pit, like this dry cistern in the ground. You're going to pick us up out of it. And then how is God going to do this? It's clear here in verse 11, through the blood of his covenant. So yes, Jesus is king. And yes, everyone would have known that he's coming to bring peace. But let's be clear on this that Jesus is the king who comes to bring peace through the blood of the covenant. This is what our Jesus does. He brings peace through the blood of the covenant, through the blood of this covenant, this new arrangement, this new deal we have with God, where we are brought into the family of God, not through our good works, not through our morality, not through our service or our giving or our church attendance. How are we brought into the family of God? Through nothing other than the bloodline of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for our sins, for our forgiveness, that when I receive that grace, when I receive that gift, I become part of God's family. I become part of God's covenant. The blood of the covenant is not a a, a side dish. It's not an optional part of the Christian faith. It is right at the center. Children of God, hear me that any version of Christianity that does not glory in the cross is not true Christian faith. Paul says in one of his letters, he says, I endeavored to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. In other words, for Paul, the cross was not something we check off and then move on to other things, but it is the centerpiece, the heartbeat of a vibrant Christian faith. Child of God, I want us to always know that the cross is no optional piece for us. And we should be aware of any type of Christianity that tries to play down the cross, ignore the cross, that's embarrassed of the cross. We should be aware of any type of Christianity that tries to dismiss the concept of sin, to say it's no big deal what you've done, and it's no, God's not really worried about sin, he's worried about other things. No, our God is deeply worried about sin. And God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners like you and I. Beware Christianity that downplays sin. Beware Christianity that downplays the wrath of God. If there were no wrath of God, the cross of Jesus would not be necessary. He would not have God to go to bear our wrath, to bear God's punishment for our sins in our place. In our place, condemned he stood. Beware Christianity 
that pushes aside the wrath of God, that pushes aside sin, that downplays the cross, that is embarrassed of the cross. Here at Calvary, I hope we can say we are never embarrassed of the cross. Every worship service you sit in is under the shadow of this cross. We have a cross that hundreds of thousands of cars every week pass by on our freeway. The very name of our church, let's remind ourselves from time to time, is Calvary Community Church. Calvary being the hill where Jesus died for our sins and for our salvation. May we always be a people who are beware of any kind of Christianity that is not glorying and centering and bringing to the middle of our hearts the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus enters in Jerusalem, his grand entrance. And here's what we understand, that if we don't get Christ right, if we don't get Christ right, we won't get Christianity right. If we don't see Jesus clearly as the king who brings peace through the blood of the covenant, we will not understand what Christianity is supposed to be like. Listen, I can't tell you every error or every heresy or every wrong Christian thought out there, but I can tell you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for who the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is our Jesus who enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And when we get Christ right, we will always get Christianity right. It's all about Jesus. It goes on this way in verse six. It says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. Now, this is a little sentence in the Bible that it's easy to blow past, but I want you to imagine this moment. Jesus says to them, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go into the city. You're gonna find some animals. Go ahead and just grab them. And if anyone confronts you, tell them that I need them and they'll be cool with that. Now, now we've read the story, so we know it works out. But imagine if I told you like, hey, this afternoon, I need you to go, I need you to, go to this pizza place. Just start grabbing pizzas off the counter. If anyone tells you, hey, you shouldn't do that, just say, hey, Pastor Brian Howard said it was cool. I imagine that moment. It would be so stressful. You're walking up to these animals. You're like, I don't know if this is going to work out, but Jesus said I'm supposed, okay, uh, Jesus needs, you know, like, but, but that's what they do, right? And I actually think this is a beautiful illustration we shouldn't blow by of what it means to obey God, right? They don't know if it's going to work out. They don't know if there's going to be a conflict or if things are going to get weird, but Jesus does. Jesus tells them what to do. And despite the fact that it could put them in an awkward circumstance, they choose to obey anyway. Church, that's what obedience looks like. That's what following Jesus looks like. We don't have to fully understand. We don't have to fully get it. We might not, we may be like, I don't know what's gonna happen if I obey what God has to say. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to walk in obedience even before we understand, even before we're certain it's gonna work out. There's this quote from Oswald Chambers, in a book called My Utmost for His Highest, and I've known this quote since I was in high school, just reading through this devotional. It says this. He says, the golden rule to follow to obtain spiritual understanding is not one of intellectual pursuit, but one of obedience. If a person wants scientific knowledge, then intellectual curiosity must be their guide. Like in other words, if I want to understand the world as it is, I should think about things and think deeply about them and research and think, and it's up in my mind. But then it says this, but if he desires knowledge and insight into the teachings of Jesus Christ, he can only obtain it through obedience. Like in other words, if you want to understand Jesus, it's not just that you think and listen and hear things and read books and listen to sermons, as good as all of those things are, the way you understand and grow in your faith is through obedience. Like God calls us to pray. And what we don't need probably is more sermons or books or intellectual curiosities about praying. You know how you understand why God calls you to pray? You start praying regularly. God calls you to forgive people who have wounded you. 
And you can listen to endless sermons or read books or podcasts or read articles online about forgiveness, but you'll never understand forgiveness until you actually forgive. God calls us to be a living sacrifice, to sacrifice in our life for the sake of the gospel that we might find the joy complete in Christ. You can read on that, you can research that, you can think about that, but you will never understand what Jesus means until you actually start sacrificing with your life, sacrificing with your money, sacrificing with your time. Until you do that, you'll never understand. What do we wanna be? We wanna be a people who say, you know what, Jesus? I don't know if I fully understand this, and it might actually make me uncomfortable, but because you said it, I'm gonna do it. Because you told me to, I'm going to obey This is what the disciples model for us. They actually model for us something I hope my children will internalize that we say to them constantly. And this is a phrase you may have used with your children or grandchildren. It's this phrase. We want you to obey all the way and right away. We want you to obey all the way and right away. Like in other words, children, when I tell you to do something, I don't want you to speculate on whether or not you think I'm correct. In other words, children, when I tell you to do something, I don't want you to sit around and ponder whether or not dad might have some biases that actually make this not such a good idea. I want them to obey all the way and right away. Now, I was thinking about this just this last weekend. It was pretty warm, and so we were by the pool uh, at my wife's parents' house, and uh, I was thinking about this with my children. Now, I've got a four-year-old girl, and she is your classic oldest kid. If we tell her to do something, she would never in her wildest dreams imagine disobeying, okay? Non-issue. I have a six-year-old little, or six, a six-week-old little girl, uh, and she's not in the obedience stage. She's just in the stay up all night and not that phase. I've got a two-year-old son. My two-year-old son, when he is by the pool, you ever notice there's kind of this, like, uh, there's two sides of things. There's like brave and courageous and like bold, and then just like recklessness. When my son is in the pool, he walks the line between those two things, right? He is brave and courageous and sometimes reckless. And so sometimes he'll jump into the pool and we'll be so proud. But then sometimes he'll be jumping into a piece of water that's this deep. And we'll go, don't do that. Sometimes he'll be running by the pool and we have to slow him down. When my son is at the pool and I am calling out like, hey, walk, don't run. Don't dive into that part of the water. Don't drink the hot tub water. When I am calling that out, I want him to obey all the way and right away. Why? Is it because I hate him? No. Is it because I want him to have a miserable day at the pool? No. It's because I would prefer for him to stay in the pool and not go to Los Robles Hospital. That's what I want. And it's the same thing with our God. Why does God want us to obey all the way and right away? It's not because he hates you. It's not because he's trying to take away your fun. It's because he wants you to flourish in all of the ways he designed you to live. The reason we walk in obedience to our God is because we want to be the type of people who flourish in the way God has for us. His commands are not for our drudgery, it's for our joy. So what does that mean for us this morning? I wanna go back to something I say all the time when it comes to sermons. Um, The the temptation when you come into church is to sort of assess, evaluate, like how'd the preacher do today? It was a six, he was all right. You know, like, oh, that was a 10, he was fired. That was a good quote. Like, it's just so tempting to wanna like assess and evaluate. But what do we want to do? When we come into church and we walk away, we should not be asking the question, how was church today? That's a fine question, but it's not the question. The question I hope we're always asking is something like this one. What next step is God calling me to take today? What thing did the Holy Spirit say to my heart that I need to walk in obedience to? What area of my life do I need to open up to God? What thing do I need to do that I know I've not been walking in obedience in? So that's what I hope we'll ask when we leave church services here. What next step, what call of obedience, what thing has God called me to do that I hope I can walk into today?
It goes on this way in verse 7. It says, They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread out their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So now we're introduced to this word, Hosanna. Jesus in his grand entrance, all eyes on him. People looking at him as king who brings peace through the blood of the covenant. And they are shouting out this word, Hosanna. We've been singing it all morning. We'll sing it again as we close the service, Hosanna. And I want us to know Hosanna is not a random religious word that they picked. They're not just saying, hallelujah, Hosanna, praise God. They're saying it very specifically. They're actually coming out of a text in the scripture that we see in Psalm chapter 118. It says this, it says, Lord, save us. The Hebrew of Lord, save us is Hosanna. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Then it goes on to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. In other words, Jesus comes in, all eyes are on him. It is his grand entrance and people are celebrating. Why? Because they know that this is the king. He brings peace through the blood of his covenant and he is the one who will save us. He is the one who will rescue us. I want us to linger on this idea that God is the one who saves and Jesus is the one who does this this morning. And I want us to do so because I think it's important as we enter into this Easter week to understand that God is in the business of saving. If you're in this room or online this morning and you just think God would never save someone like you, maybe you're new to church or newer to church or it's been a long time or you're just not even, never even had anything to do with God. Or maybe you used to walk with God and then you turned your back on him and you're trying to find your way back. Perhaps you've wondered, Would God ever save someone like me? And this morning, I wanna try to answer this question clearly. We see them crying out, God save. I wanna try to answer a simple question. What kind of people will not be saved? And you might think the answer is the really bad sinners, the people who never come to church, the people who never serve at church, the people who never show up at church. Maybe God doesn't save people who used to go to church and then walked away. But none of those things are the case. Can I just relieve someone in this room to know that it is not your behavior that God says, I won't save you for? It's very simple. What kind of people will God not save? It's the type of people who don't think they need saving. It's the arrogant person who says, God, I don't need you. Forget you. I'm going on my own way, doing my own thing. That is the kind of person God will not save. So if you're in this room going, I need God to rescue me. I need him to save me. I just don't know if he will. The good news of the gospel that I say on the authority of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ came into the world just to save sinners like you and me. And he is quite happy and quite able to do so. If you find yourself leaning back into faith after a long time, or maybe you've never called on the name of Jesus, I invite you to do that today because God is in the business of saving folks like you and folks like me. If you would call on his name, the only type of people God will not save is the arrogant who do not think they need saving, who do not think they need God. It goes on this way in verse 10. It says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? I love the fact that the whole city was stirred. And this happened not because someone sent out a tweet and everyone was excited about that, right? This happened because one person's like, hey, Jesus is coming. And someone else was like, hey, Jesus is coming. And someone else told someone else and people kept telling people until everyone knew that Jesus was on his way. That's our dream for what this church would be and what we would be as a church in this Conejo Valley. Our dream, my dream is that no one would live here long in our community without hearing the name of Jesus, without knowing that God loves them, without being invited into the family of God. It's our dream that that would happen, but I wanna be clear that this dream will never be accomplished simply through our church alone. 
We may be a large church, but even with the size of our church, we cannot possibly reach every person in the Caneo Valley. But here's what we believe, that we are not the only Bible-teaching, gospel-proclaiming church in the Conejo Valley, that we have sister churches in this region and in this area that we love and adore and support and build up and cheer for and pray for constantly. So one of the things we've done to sort of recognize that this Easter is we have teamed up with 19 other churches in our community, 19 other Bible-teaching, gospel-proclaiming churches who have their eyes set on the same Jesus we've been talking about this morning, and we have combined for Easter for something I hope you see somewhere this week called Easter in the Conejo. Easter in the Conejo is really simple. We've looked at this greater Conejo Valley, teamed up with a bunch of churches. It's many churches, but it's one Jesus, because here's what we believe that Christ is risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And it is all about Jesus. It is not all about Calvary. We wanna celebrate that. We wanna recognize that. And so here's what all over the Canal Valley there are. There's these invitations you'll see to Easter. And then you'll see this website here. And when you go onto this website, all you do is enter in your address and then it'll give you the closest church to you. For some people, that's gonna be Calvary. For other people, that's gonna be other churches in the community. And we wanna celebrate the good things that God is doing in other churches. You'll see these banners. Maybe you've actually already seen one and not recognized what it is. You'll see these little yard signs um, all over the place uh, that people are starting to pop up. We actually have a number of these in the lobby. So we have a front desk right over there by the welcome booth, the information booth. If you wanna put up one of these yard signs in your yard, you go ahead and grab one. It is free of charge. And I know Christians love free stuff. So today... Go ahead and grab one. Why? Because we want to promote Easter in the Conejo. We want to be the type of people who celebrate what God is doing, not just in our church, but in churches all over our region. It's never all about Calvary. It's always, always about Jesus. And so we want to be that type of people. And then in light of this whole city being stirred and that being our heart, can I invite you to do two things this week? Two things for everyone who's listening to my voice this morning. Number one, would you ask God to bless all the other churches' Easter services? Would you just pray for churches in our region that God would bless their Easter services, bless their pastors, bless their worship leaders, bless their services, bless what happens in those places? Would you invite God to bless those churches? Because what we want to see is revival, and it happens here, that's awesome. But if God is going to move in other churches, praise God for that. It's an amazing thing. So would you just pray this week for other churches? And then number two, um, would you ask God to give you the name of one person you can invite to our Easter services? And here's what I'm saying. Um, Sometimes we say invite a person, you're like, who am I supposed to invite? Here's what I want you to do. Just ask God who you're supposed to invite. Just say, God, who do you want me to invite to church this week? Is there someone you want me to invite? And here's what I've found throughout my faith walk. Every time I ask God to tell me to do something uncomfortable, he's very happy to do it. (laughs) And, And so here's it is. Just ask God, who is it? Is it my hairdresser? Is it my neighbor? Is it my colleague? Is it my sister who hasn't been to church in years? Is it someone I used to sit next to here at Calvary and then just the pandemic hit and they just got busy with other things? Who is it that I need to invite? Would you just ask God for a name this week? And if God gives you that name, would you just have the courage to say yes, to obey all the way and right away, to say, yes, God, I'm in. See, because here's how our text ends this morning. Our text ends here in verse 11. It says this, the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, in Galilee. In other words, the whole city is stirred up and everyone's asking, what is going on here? Everyone's seeing this person come in and they're like, this is Jesus. Accurate, 100% true. He is from Nazareth in Galilee. Accurate, 100% true. He is the prophet. Accurate, but not 100% true. Mostly true needs some more context, right? A little fact check on this. He is a prophet in that he speaks for who God is and reveals God's heart. 
He is also a teacher and he's a miracle worker. He is a friend. He is a savior. But we also need to understand that Jesus is God in human flesh. That Jesus is the incarnate God come to reveal God, rescue and redeem his people. And here's what I want to note at the end of the story. Everyone sees Jesus' grand entrance. They're starting to figure out that he's the king who brings peace through the blood of his covenant. And yet they're still not fully clear on who this Jesus is. And the reason they're not fully clear on who Jesus is, because they don't know the story in the next week. Like, we all get this, right? Like, we know what happens in the next week. Five days from this day, he'll be on a cross. Three days later, sorry to spoil the ending, he's going to raise up from the grave. That's what's going to happen. But they don't know this yet. So they simply see Jesus and they go, he is a prophet. But here's what we need to understand. That the story only makes sense when you know the end. The story only makes sense when you know the end. And this is true in every area of our life. It's true with Jesus. It's true with something that happened to me last week. So last week I had this opportunity, um, or or something happened in our family, where um, my parents, um, they came down. um, And and they live in the Lake Tahoe area. And they came down to to hang um, in this area for a month. They rented a little place. They're here. My brother's getting married. It's this really wonderful time. So they came down. And it was a Tuesday afternoon, and they came to my house. And they come over to my house, and, and they're, they're not able to check into their place yet, so they have a few hours to hang with us. They walk in the front door, and something I always forget, because I'm just not an animal person, is that my parents own a cat, okay? And so they come in the front door, and they're carrying the little carrier with the cat, and they put the cat down. And the cat had just driven from Lake Tahoe area, so it was kind of restless and wanted to move about. And so there was this discussion going on. I won't say who said what, of whether or not the cat should be let out or not. And ultimately, it was decided that the cat would be let out of the box, They let the cat out of the box, and little did we know, the back door was open, and the cat takes off, and the cat is nowhere to be found. We we search for the cat. We look around the cat. We're calling out for the cat. We look in all the different places the cat might be. My two-year-old son is walking around the backyard going, kitty, kitty. It was adorable. We can't find the cat. We're looking for the cat. We're thinking about the cat. We're wondering if the cat's, we call my brother over to see if he can help find the cat. The cat is nowhere to be found. And so the sun is starting to set, and they need to check into their place. So they ultimately leave our home. And what they do in an act of desperation is leave out a little bowl full of water and a bowl full of food so that the cat might find its way back, perhaps. And in my mind, I'm going, this cat has gone for 100 years, because that's what cats do, right? So the cat is gone, and there's some grief, because they've just come down for this wonderful month in Southern California. And the first thing that happens is they lose their cat. And there's some grief. Now, if that was the end of the story... This would be a tragedy, right? They come, they lose their cat, there's no redemption. That's it. The cat's gone. But my friends, it is not the end of the story. Because that very night, I put my children down to bed. My wife decides to go to bed. And so I decide to go into my office and sit in my big brown chair to read a book. And as I sit down on my big brown chair, suddenly I hear scratching on the back of my big brown chair. And who is it? None other but the cat who had never left the house in the first place had darted into the office. And we found the cat. I called my parents. They came and redeemed their cat. And this tragedy turned into a comedy. That's what happened. Now, how do you know how to react to that story? You know how to react to the story by the ending of it, right? Because if the story ends with the cat is gone forever, it's a pretty sad story. But the fact that it ended with the cat was found and was in the house all along turns it into a comedy. It turns it into a story you can laugh about. It turns it into the type of story where you go, I get what the story's all about because I know the end. And Calvary, can I remind you about what the end is of the story this morning? Because the end is not Jesus marching into Jerusalem. On Friday, we'll celebrate Good Friday, but Jesus dying on the cross is not the end of the story. 
On Easter, we will celebrate the resurrection, and that is a central event to the Christian faith, but that is not actually the end of the story. Jesus will rise from the dead and spend 40 days launching the church into the world, and he will ascend into heaven, but that is not the end of the story. Can I remind you that the end of the story has yet to happen yet, and yet we are told in the end of the Bible what the end of the story is. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 says this, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Children of God, let me remind you how the story ends. The story will end one day when the trumpet will sound, the sky will crack open, every eye will see him, every tongue will confess him as Lord, and Jesus Christ will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. That is the end to your story. That is how this thing wraps up. And so what do we as the people of God do? We know how the story ends. We know it ends with Jesus coming to put down sin and death and hell and evil itself. So what do we do? We know the end of the story so the rest of the story can make sense to us. We know the story ends with Jesus making all things new. So when we see things in this world like a war going on in Ukraine, like famine or plague or pestilence, when we see racism and oppression and corruption in this world, when we see things happening in our culture and in our media that horrify us, what do we as the people of God do? How do we react to that? We react because we know the end of the story. See, Jesus only two times in scripture is gonna ride an animal. Here he's riding on a colt. But there's coming a day he's going to come back on a white horse. See, that's what we anticipate. So what do we do? What is the cry of our heart? What do we do as the people of God until Jesus returns in glory? And the answer is simple. We cry out what we see in this text, Hosanna in the highest heaven. And what does Hosanna mean? It means save us, rescue us, redeem us, pull us up out of this. God, the world is a mess and we need you to come. And here's the greatest thing about the prayer, Hosanna, that we've sung all morning. And we'll sing again right now. We can be 100% confident that this prayer, Hosanna, Lord save us, will be answered in the affirmative by our God on the day that Jesus returns in glory. What a confidence we have. What a sure thing we know that that is what our God is going to do. So child of God, this Palm Sunday, would you cry out, Hosanna, God save us, knowing that that is exactly what our Jesus plans on doing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks once again for your word and thank you that Jesus is who he said he was. On that day when he entered Jerusalem, God, he was who he said he was and he is now as he awaits his return. God, I long for and believe for that day where you will make all things new, where you will put down sin, death, and hell itself. God, I pray, God, I pray that you would give us the confidence to live as followers of Jesus until that day. Father, I once again just pray for all the other churches in our region and our area as we approach Easter. God, may it be a blessed time for their pastors, their worship leaders, their churches. May they be filled with people coming to Jesus. And God, I pray for each of us that we would have the courage and the boldness to invite someone to bring someone with us that people might see Jesus for who he is. Hosanna, God. Would you save and rescue us from the pit that we stand in currently? Would you help us each day, we pray. In Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.